0: Good morning. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm well, too. Thank you. Isaiah chapter 6. If you have a Bible handy, there are Bibles available in the pews in front of you. Um, Always encourage you to bring your own Bible if you have one. If you'd like to take notes or keep track of things, uh, bring a Bible with you and uh, and do that. Uh, But we do have them available in front of you if you uh, didn't bring one today. Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, we are going to continue today our little uh, study of this passage. So as you arrive at that place, I invite you, if you would, to uh, close your eyes and bow your heads, but open your hearts, and um, let's invite God's presence to be with us as we enter into his word. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a speaking God, and that when we Uh, sing that prayer to you, asking you to speak and to reveal yourself that we are asking you to do not only what you want to do, but we are asking you to do what you have already done and are continually doing. And so, Lord, as we enter into your word, uh, let this not just simply be an intellectual exercise, something that happens in our minds, but let this word be something that grips our hearts and penetrates into our souls and comes alive for us so that we can become different sorts of people, so that we can become more and more the sorts of people who reflect your presence in our world. Lord, let that uh, new presence, let our obedience to you become our worship. Lord, we give this time to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, let's take a look at uh, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, and we'll just read a handful of these verses together. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah writes. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is in church when this happens. Hovering around him were mighty seraphim, each had six wings, With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with the remaining two they flew. In a great chorus they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Uh, The glorious singing shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. Then he said, My destruction is sealed, for I'm a sinful man and a member of a sinful race. Yet I have seen the King, of uh, the, King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew over uh, to the altar. He picked up a burning coal with a pair of tongs, and he touched my lips with it. And he said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord ask, Whom should I send as a messenger to my people? who will go for us? And I said, Lord, I'll go, send me. And we'll ask God to bless this reading his holy and inspired word. Amen. So as we've been uh, making our way uh, for a couple of uh, weeks now through this uh, uh, section of Isaiah, this little chapter here, um, and the more I look at it, I almost broke it into another week this week, but uh, I'm going to hold it to three. Uh, But it's progress. I'm doing well. I'm thinking about these things now. So um, so we've been thinking about this question. Um, have you had an encounter with God? Have you had an encounter with God? In other words, is God for you just an idea? Is God for you an ex- uh, just a, a concept? Is God for you a theory or a philosophy? Or have you had an encounter with God? Have you had an experience with the presence of God in your life? And a couple of weeks ago when I first posed that question, uh, I was looking out over a group of people, and many of you were smiling and nodding your head and saying, yes, we've had such an experience, we've had such an encounter. And many of you uh, sent me notes and stories and affirmations that God has been uh, present and active in your life. And, uh, and I want to say amen, and I'm thankful for that. How do you know if you've had an encounter with God? How do you know if God has touched your life? How do you know if you've shown up in a place and God was really there? Last uh, time we talked about this, we focused on the idea of God's glory. and We said, this is one way that you know if the presence of God has come into your life. God's glory has come. God's glory is present in your life. If you have God's glory in your life, we said, remember, God's glory is God's weight. It's God's massiveness. It's God's heaviness, the, the heavy, massive weight of God. Uh, remember we had those little, those little uh, balls of tungsten, right? And we, we said uh, when the, the presence of God comes into your life, it has weight. And that weight will, will displace everything about you. Uh, when the presence of God comes into your life, everything is changed. Everything becomes different. You begin to uh, be the sort of person who longs to be close to God. You become the sort of person who has a desire to be uh, a, a worshiper of God. You're moved to please God in everything that you do. In other words, uh, 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 obedience to God isn't a a burden, it isn't a hardship, it isn't onerous, it doesn't feel distasteful to you, but doing what is pleasing to God is the deepest desire of your heart. This is what the glory of God uh, upsets everything else in our life and changes who we are at the deepest level. It's as if um, our life is just swamped by the waves when the glory of God is dropped into the pool of our lives. On the other hand, uh, if God for you is just an idea, just a concept, just a philosophy, just a theory, uh, if you've thought about God but never encountered him, God has no glory in your life. Uh, God as a concept has no glory. God as an idea has no weight. There's no mass. There's no heaviness. And so God will drop into your life as a concept and just float on the surface and nothing much will change. Uh, You can stay pretty much who you are. You can retain all of your thinking, all of your ideas, all of your plans, all of your agendas, all of your values, all of your priorities, uh, all of your your taste, all of your friends, uh, all of your demeanor, uh, your character. Nothing really has to change uh, in order for God as an idea just to be floating around the surface of your life. It doesn't have any weight. It doesn't displace anything. This week we want to uh, press just a little bit further and look at another word. Uh, How do you know if you have had an encounter with God Uh, The first is the glory of God is present in your life. The weight of God has changed you. Uh, The second word that we want to look at in this little study is this idea of holiness. Uh, You've had an encounter with God's holiness. Something has happened. God's holiness. Uh, The seraphim actually say, uh, holy, holy, holy. Uh, Sometimes we sing the song, holy, holy, holy. We have a couple of different versions of that. Uh, Holy, holy, holy shows up. Uh, Not only here in Isaiah, but it shows up again uh, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Uh, The angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. Now in uh, the Hebrew language that Isaiah is using to write this um, uh, prophecy, uh, uh, one of the ways that you might show an intensification uh, or a magnitude of something is to repeat the word. Uh, so in other words, uh, you might say, like in Genesis 14, there's a place where it talks about uh, somebody falling into a really, really big pit. And instead of saying a really, really big pit, uh, what the Hebrew says is they fell into a pit pit. So they repeat the word, right? It's it's like a, a pity pit, the deepest pit, right? So if you fall into a pit pit, that's a really big problem, right? It's a really deep pit. Uh, they're really pity pits. Uh, in 2 Kings 25, there's another uh, place that that happens, and they're talking about um, really high-quality gold. And instead of saying really super high-quality gold, it says that it's gold gold. It repeats the word, gold gold. Uh, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's the best gold. It's the most refined gold. It's the most precious gold. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the most valuable gold, uh, the purest gold, the most exquisite gold. And so uh, magnitude. Or intensity gets expressed in the Hebrew language very often by just repeating the word. Now, nowhere else in the Bible is there a tripling of the word. And so here, uh, when the seraphim are saying "Holy, holy, holy," not only not only are they saying that God's holiness is the best holiness, it's the greatest holiness, it's the purest holiness, it's the most exquisite holiness, but they add another intensification to it, three times: "Holy, holy, holy." In other words, there is no holiness greater than the holiness of God. The holiness of God is absolutely perfect. It isn't just holy, holy that they say. It's holy, holy, holy. The absolute category beyond all categories. Perfection of holiness. So what is this holiness that they're talking about? Um, Hebrew scholars talk about the uh, word here, kadosh, that uh, means um, a couple of different things. On the one hand, the word itself means superlative. It means uh, e- extreme, the very best. It's a um, uh, it's a it's sort of a, a unique superlativeness. Uh, to say that uh, God's wisdom is holy wisdom is to say that his wisdom is the very best wisdom. Uh, if if you're to say that God's love is holy love, you're to say that it's uh, love that's infinitely better than any other love. Uh, If you were to say that God's uh, presence is a holy presence, then God's presence is the very best sort of presence. Uh, So you can put the word holy in front of another word, and it intensifies the word. It makes it into the very best version of that thing. Holy wisdom, holy love, holy presence. But there's another meaning for the word holiness, and that is the idea of brilliance or beauty, uh, brightness. So, So far, here's what we know about the presence of God. On the one hand, it's heavy. God has a heavy, weighty, massive presence that sends ripples effect into your life. And now we're saying the presence of God is bright. It's it's uh, it's uh, um, luminescent. Uh, it's brilliant. And this is what you get with the seraphim. They're saying holy, holy, holy. And what are they doing? They're not. They're not just. They're not just um, saying it once and they're done. Uh, But the way that Isaiah describes it, he's using a a, a form of the grammar that says they're constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Whenever they're uh, in the presence of God, these angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. They're they're constantly singing these these words of praise. Uh, In other words, they're fascinated by God's holiness. They're, They're drawn to God's holiness. They love God's holiness. They can't get enough of God's holiness. They're constantly adoring the holiness of God. Now let me just pause there for a minute and say, uh, think about this. If you are a person who longs to be in the presence of God, if you say to yourself, I want to know how to uh, not control the presence of God, but be available uh, for the presence of God, uh, to set my sails, to adjust my rudder, so that I'm in the right position, so that when the Spirit of God blows, I'm there to experience the full effect. I'm a person that desires and longs to know uh, an encounter with God in my life. I want the, the weight of God to send a ripple effect through my whole life. I want to know the presence of God. If you're a person who wants to do that, then take note of these seraphim. The seraphim, these angels, are constantly there. The seraphim are constantly in the presence of God. They never leave the presence of God. And what do they do in the presence of God? What do the seraphim do? They're always saying, holy, holy, holy. They're, they're attracted, they're enamored by it, they're captivated by it this holiness of God, the superlative brilliance of God. They're focused on God's holiness. So what does that mean for us? Here's the challenge. Let's say, for example, uh, that you are a person uh, who has a family with a lot of wealth. You come from uh, old money. You have a lot of money. And you have that wealth sitting there Uh, maybe it's in trust funds, it's highly structured, you have a lot of wealth. And somebody comes to you and says that they fall in love with you and they want to marry you. And you get married, and very shortly after the wedding, you're having a conversation, and this individual that you married, this man or this woman uh, that you've married, uh, discovers that there's no way that they can get their hands on your family money. That the structure of that family money will prevent them from ever having access to it. And so they divorce you. Now, if you're in that position, how do you feel? What are you thinking? How many of you say, well, that would feel really good. I would feel feel like I was really loved for who I was. I would feel like that was a really genuine marriage. None of us would feel that way. We would feel terribly used. We would feel violated. We We would feel like we were just a means to a greater end. This person only loved me for my money. They only loved me for what I could give to them. And I want to suggest that many of us, many of us relate to God in that same way. Many of us come to God and we say things like, you know, I'm, you know, I used to know God, I used to be a Christian, I used to worship God, I used to be really engaged with the presence of God, but I've given all that up because God just disappointed me. God didn't do the things that I asked him to do. I prayed to God and he didn't do the things that I thought he should do and would have been right to do. And then all kinds of things did come into my life that shouldn't have come into my life. God has just let me down. He didn't come through for me. It's as if God has this huge bank account, this wealth of blessings, and it's sitting out there somewhere. And now I've gotten into a relationship with God, but I can never really get my hands on it, it seems. And I was just after God's blessings, not after God. I wasn't going to get the blessings, and so I left. I disengaged. You married God for his money. If you marry God for his money, you'll never have the glory of God in your life. Uh, If you marry God for his money, uh, you'll never have an encounter with his presence. The seraphim say, we love God, we worship God, we adore God for his holiness. Here's the difference. The seraphim are not adoring and serving God. They're not worshiping God because of some sort of a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, They're not saying, you know, it really in the end pays off to know God. I really get a lot out of this relationship with God. It isn't that I will worship God, and this great exchange is that if I worship God, if I obey God, I'm going to get power or approval, or I'm going to get comfort or control or significance or security. I'll get something back from it. It isn't that they're doing that kind of analysis. They're serving God just because it's his due, just simply because of who God is. They desire God for God's own sake. For the seraphim and for you, God's holiness isn't useful. You see that? God's holiness isn't useful for anything for you. Uh, If you love God for God's holiness, you're loving God for God himself. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, talked about this at some length, and he points out that there are many aspects of who God is that are really useful right? Uh, uh, If you say, I'm going to worship God because God is a God of power. uh, There's something about God's power that I could sort of selfishly get excited about because it's a benefit to me. I could say, I have a powerful God, right? God is going to give me victory. God is going to let me triumph. God is going to let me win because I have the power of God in my life or the wisdom of God. Maybe you say, you know, I can get selfishly excited about God's wisdom, I can I can come to God, and I can have guidance. I can have direction. I can have understanding. The wisdom of God is a benefit to me. I can come to God, and I can get excited selfishly about God's mercy, right? I'm a sinner. I'm broken, and, and God's mercy is going to come to me, and what will happen? I'm going to get rid of my, my shame. I'll get rid of my guilt. I'll be set free, and there's a benefit to me uh, for because of God's mercy. But what, what Jonathan Edwards says is, but God's holiness, uh, God's holiness isn't of any benefit to you at all. God's holiness isn't any benefit to you. Uh, instead, God's holiness is a threat. Uh, anyone who worships God because of God's holiness, anyone who adores God because of God's holiness, is loving God just for who God is. Now, a minute ago I said that the holiness of God uh, is a threat to you. What does that mean? Remember we said that God's uh, holiness is God's superlativeness. Uh, it's God's exceeding excellence. It's his exceeding brilliance. Uh, what happens when you get into the presence of that brilliance, of that excellence? Uh, do a little thought experiment with me. Uh, what happens when you get into the presence of human superlativeness? If you get into the presence of uh, human excellence. Uh, A number of weeks ago, we had a chance to uh, unwrap one of Benjamin's Christmas presents. Uh, If you're uh, on Facebook with me, you saw that uh, we went to Chicago, uh, Chicago Chicagoland area, and uh, for Christmas, uh, Benjamin was given uh, an opportunity to drive a Lamborghini on a racetrack at racing speeds, right, Uh, just to drive three laps, right? Uh, that's as close to a Lamborghini as anybody in this family will ever get. Believe me, but um, but so um, uh, so we go to uh, so we go down there to Chicago, and I knew that we were going to get him that for Christmas. Uh, but then my wife decided to throw in a little bonus, and she got uh, me a chance to ride along in a pace car, right, at race speeds, right. And so I got didn't you know didn't get to drive, but I got to ride along on this racetrack, right. And now listen. Um, I've I usually have you know I usually think of myself as a pretty good driver, right? Um, I'm in fact if you, know, if you were to push me on it, I would say I'm an excellent driver. Um, I'm a really excellent driver. I, I mean that's my my image of myself. Right? I'm a really good driver, right? I, I like to I, you know I'm, my wife doesn't think I'm a great driver. Uh, in fact, I kind of, my driving kind of drives her a little bit nuts. Uh, she'll tell you all about that, I'm sure. But uh, that's her. Yeah. So so I you know so I'm an excellent driver. Excellent driver. Get, um, I feel like Rain Man all of a sudden, excellent driver, definitely, <laughs> and, and then I get into this race car uh, with a professional driver, right? I get into a race car with a professional driver, and this man knows how to drive. He, he is not just excellent, he's a superlative driver, right? He is, he is a glorious driver. Almost a holy driver. He's an excellent driver. He, this man, a super, and he's he's you know taking curves at speeds that I wouldn't even think of going straight with, and you know he's doing all kinds of things out on that racetrack, and he's just chit chatting about things that were passing by, and oh, there's a robin, and right, my my knuckles are white. What's happening? And he, you know, and in the presence of this professional racing driver. Not only is he a professional driver, but he teaches other people to be excellent professional racing drivers. He's an excellent driver, right? Superlative driver. And how do I feel, right? All of my bravado about I'm a good driver, I'm a good driver. And suddenly I feel I can't hardly drive at all, right? I feel like I'm a, it's my first day of driver's training, right? When we get in the presence of human excellence, how do you feel, right? Uh, we lived in Los Angeles for a number of years. And every once in a while, you'd run into people in Los Angeles who said, you know, uh, I'm from some small town. Uh, back in Michigan or back in South Dakota or Iowa or something like that, ran from some town, and I thought I was beautiful or I thought I could act. And then I came to Los Angeles, and I went to my first audition, and holy moly, right? Uh, Suddenly, uh, my sense of um, self-esteem just came crashing down around my ears, right? Suddenly, I thought I was beautiful, and I came to, to Los Angeles, and Uh, There's there's a million people here who are more beautiful than I am. I thought I could act. I was the best actor in my community theater, and I came to Los Angeles. I went to an audition, and uh, there are a million people in Los Angeles that are a better actor than I am. Listen, if you want to do something to bolster your self-esteem, don't move to Los Angeles. It's a stupid idea. Don't move to Los Angeles. Uh, Tammy used to live in Nashville, and she would meet people who show up in Nashville and say, You know, I have a good voice. I can play guitar a little bit. I'm going to make it big as a country singer. And you'd show up in Nashville, and you'd find out that everybody in Nashville can sing and play guitar. Everybody can do what you can do. Don't go to Nashville if you want to improve your self-esteem as a singer. What happens when you get in the presence of human superlativeness, when you get into the presence of humans who are excellent at what they do? So what happens? What happens to Isaiah? Here's what we know about Isaiah. Isaiah, um, that tradition tells us, was from a royal family. Uh, tradition tells us that his father was the brother to the king. So Isaiah is an example of human superlativeness. He's human excellence. He's a part of the elite. And what we know about Isaiah from his book is that he is a person of artistic and intellectual and communicative genius, right? If you write a book, if you I mean if you write a book, you're doing pretty well. If you write a book, and people are still studying that book, 3,000 years later, you're on to something, right? You're a smart guy. We're still talking about Isaiah, 3,000 years. He's he's an elite communicator. He's an elite in his culture. And he's in an oral culture. Isaiah lives in a culture that is uh, all about oral communication. He's a person of lips, he says. He's a person of lips. He has a golden tongue. He's an orator. He's a speaker. He can can communicate. In an oral culture, that was power. And you can just imagine Isaiah all of his life saying, you know, when I get power, when I get to power, uh, when I have influence, I'm going to set things right. I can look around and I can see the brokenness in my culture and I can see what's wrong with my country. And when I get into power, I'm going to set things straight. And whenever we start talking about what's wrong out there, What are we going to fix? You know, we're always thinking about somebody else out there. We're always uh, pointing the finger at somebody else, right? Young people think it's the the, uh, old fuddy-duddies that are the problem, and the old fuddy-duddies think it's the young people that are the problem. Management says it's the union, If the union would just get it under control, and the union thinks it's management. Democrats think it's Republicans, and Republicans think it's Democrats. Everybody thinks they're the unclean ones. They're the problem. They're the mess. They're the ones who need to be fixed. And then Isaiah The elite, sophisticated, brilliant orator, Isaiah, gets into the presence of the superlative excellence, the brilliant holiness of God. And what does Isaiah say? He says, I'm nothing. I am undone. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. All of my people are unclean, and I am just as unclean. Even my lips, in other words, even the best of me, even my best parts are unclean. They're flawed, they're wrong, they're selfish, they're distorted, they're twisted. listen, Listen, every single place in the Bible where a human being experiences the holiness of God, they hate themselves. Hold on just a minute. I know that doesn't sound very cheerful and uplifting, but just think about that. Every time somebody comes into the superlative brilliance, the perfection of holy God, they hate themselves. Even if you get into the presence of a loving God, a God who is nothing but pure love, you would hate yourself. And you would say this, you say, I'm so cruel, right? "I I thought I was great at loving. I thought I was caring. I thought I was compassionate. I thought I had tons of love. I loved people. But when I get into the presence of God, I say, I can't even hardly drive, right? I can't even sing. I'm not beautiful at all. I'm not loving at all. I've never loved anybody. If the presence of human superlativeness causes your self-image to come crashing down, how, much, how could it be different with God? Here's how you know that you've gotten into presence of God, how you've begun to move God from being a concept or an idea to having God be a reality. You begin to be a person who knows that you're a sinner. You think that you're lost. You see uh, that you're capable of more cruelty, more capable of evil. You're more selfish, you're pettier, you're more small-minded and more impatient than you ever thought possible. You know you're a sinner and you know that you need to be rescued by grace. Everything comes crashing down. Isaiah is utterly undone. So Isaiah comes into the presence of this holy, brilliant, beautiful God. He sees that he's part of the problem. He sees that the problem is with the human race. He sees his pride. He sees his cruelty. He sees his uh, unclean lips. He sees his sin. And he confesses that. And the minute he confesses that word, what happens? Here comes the fire of God flying towards him. Now just think about what would have been going on in Isaiah's mind in that moment. He's in church, and suddenly he sees the robes of God filling the space. Uh, How many of you remember, I don't know how many remember, we used to have little angels that would hang down here uh, for Advent, right? And uh, the the angels would be up there twirling on wires and stuff, big, huge, massive angels, flowing robes and everything else. If you, uh, the first couple of weeks that those were up there, uh, you would come in here, and you'd forget that those were there, and you'd have, you would, you'd have a, a, a heart attack. It, would, it was terrifying, right, to see hanging uh, angels. Uh, uh, it, it, um, Isaiah walks in. He doesn't see uh, paper and cloth and wires. He sees seraphim. He sees the robes of God. He's in the presence of God. He is terrified. In the holiness of God, he becomes acutely aware of how dire and helpless and broken his situation is. And he says, I am undone. I am unclean. There's nothing good in me. There's no good in me. And what, what happens? A seraphim picks up the fire of God, right? And we know it's the fire of God because the seraphim can't even touch it with, with their hands. And they pick up some tongs and they pick up the fire of God. And now, now this fire is coming at your face. What do you think is going to happen? What does Isaiah think is going to happen? He touches his lips. He touches his lips, the the, the very point of his confession. And for a moment, it would sting. For a minute, there would be incredible searing pain. But then, instead of a message of destruction, he hears these words. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been cleansed. You've been put right again. And you've just been touched by God's grace. How do you begin to experience the living presence of God? How do you get to have an encounter with God? I encounter God. God begins to move from a concept to a reality. As I come to worship God and love God for his holiness, not for any gain, not for anything that I get out. In fact, as I come and see the holiness of God and love the holiness of God, I am undone. I ruthlessly confront the reality of my brokenness, not just my worst parts, but my best parts. And then just as I'm about to crumble completely, God comes and says, you are cleansed. You are redeemed. Your sin is atoned. You are mine. And you have been touched by grace. Let that in. Let that happen. Every single time we come to this place of worship, we come adoring God, loving God for his holiness, for who God is in and of himself. And then we have this moment of confession. Let that in. Let that penetrate. Let that sink into your soul. So that the fire of God can redeem you again. Would you pray with me, please? Holy God, send your fire to this place. Uh, That's a dangerous prayer. It's an unsettling prayer. Lord, if your fire were to come, if we were to behold your holiness, we would be undone. In the house of cards that we have erected around us, monuments to our ideas of perfection and performance would crumble away. We would see our precarious position for what it is. And and yet, Lord, that is our prayer. That is our prayer, that you would send your fire, that we would see you. That we would be undone, that we would come to the end of ourselves and that we would be restored again by you. Thank you for your son. Amen.